And what are we out here for? To free our people. Hey. They need the same freedom and autonomy and control of their body that we have. And so uh, it's really important that we consider their health. Hey y'all, Kalia here. You're listening to Race Capital on WRIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Independent Radio. Since the beginning of the pandemic, community members have been calling for the release of all those incarcerated at the so-called Richmond City Justice Center. Now, more than 100 people at RCJC have tested positive for COVID-19, and one person has already died. Our comrades on the inside are facing retaliation from officers for simply requesting adequate medical attention. These conditions are inhumane. We stand in solidarity with those who have been kidnapped, convicted, and caged. Understand that this is happening during a time where rent is due for the seventh month in a row during an unprecedented pandemic with one stimulus check that only some people received, mounting evictions, an increased state surveillance and repression of organizers for Black liberation and justice nationwide. On Monday, September 1st, community members, that included Black families and youth, came out to demand that people incarcerated in the so-called Richmond City Justice Center be released. This action ended with police attacking protesters in riot gear. Violent arrests occurred, and the police have yet to be held accountable for their actions. This week on Race Capital, we are running a rerun of our Free Our People episode from April of this year. Listen in to hear more historical context for current events from just a few months ago. All of these deaths are preventable. Today on Race Capital, we have Sally Hudson from the 57th District of Virginia. Thank you so much for being here, Delegate Hudson. Always happy to join you. We are keeping our eye on what's happening across the Commonwealth on decarceration and depopulation. We noticed in the media that you sent a letter directly to our governor with some concerns. Can you tell us a little bit about your letter to the governor and what sparked um, that action from you? Well, I think it starts from the perspective right now that close quarters are not safe spaces during the COVID crisis. And that applies to people living in close quarters wherever they are. It doesn't matter if they're in college dorms, if they're in nursing homes, and it especially applies to folks who are living in our jails and prisons right now. Um, I mean, if you see what's happening with a lot of outbreaks in our nursing homes and you imagine that their care standards um, are probably at least as good, if not probably better, than a number of our carceral facilities, then you have to start getting very scared about what is happening to folks living in close quarters in our jails and prisons. 
um, for me, that sparked really quickly because I live in Charlottesville, which is right next door to Fluvanna, which is home to the Fluvanna Correctional Center for Women. Um, and we, I was starting to hear very scary things from um, staff who were there inside about outbreaks happening. Um, as I think some of your listeners may already know, there has already been um, one of the folks, one of the women who was incarcerated at that facility has already passed away due to COVID. And we know that there are many others who have been infected. Um, you know, prisons and jails are, are just powder kegs anytime you've got an infectious disease outbreak. And we need to take that seriously. And so um, I helped rally some of my colleagues to send a letter to the governor um, to outline a number of executive authority actions that we felt he could be taking um, to accelerate the release of people from these close quarters so we could keep more people safe. So you said executive authority power. What, is, what does that mean exactly? So there are lots of tools in his toolbox that I think right now Governor Northam is not using. Here's one of the big problems that we have in Virginia. Parole was abolished in Virginia in 1995 with a handful of exceptions, um, with the exception of, of geriatric parole and then folks who were incarcerated before that. Um, we don't have a lot of the traditional parole levers that they might have in other places to help expedite release. And so then the question is, what can we do? And one of the big things that the governor can do is use his clemency authority. Um, he can pardon people to accelerate their release from prison. And so one of the, the big things that we were outlining is to say, hey, right now you've got some local officials who could be releasing more folks from their local and regional jails, but they're not. And so you can actually, with your clemency authority, reach down into those local facilities and ensure that they are accelerating release in line with the guidelines um, that you offered. I mean, we wanna affirm and support the governor's uh, statement that he, he encourages that behavior, but he can go farther than that. He can do it himself. And so these are actions that he can take um, within his own power, but there's been a lot of conversation about the special session coming up April 22nd and some possibilities there. Can you explain a little bit about what's coming up? So there is one really important amendment that the governor has sent down for today's special session, and that is some new budget language, which would authorize the Department of Corrections um, some more discretion to consider early release for individuals with less than one year left to serve on their sentence. This is a great step and we're definitely going to be supportive of it, all of us who helped launch that letter. But the, the big point that we tried to make is we sent that letter on April 10th and we started writing it days before that and we knew this was a problem days before that. And so we've waited a long time and the 12 days between when we sent that letter and when we're now reconvening in Richmond is really like an eon in a pandemic. In, in a pandemic, time is so valuable and we would have liked to see um, all of our officials in the criminal legal system all across the Commonwealth using every tool that they have as quickly as possible. So hoping that that amendment passes and goes forward, um, does that mean that then people will start to be released? What would have to happen after that for people to um, feel like this is a, a answer to their call? Well, I think we're going to see how much of that discretion that the DOC starts to exercise. And I think we should all keep a very careful eye to see how many people are they releasing, um, what kinds of folks are they releasing. Um, I think that they should be using that authority very broadly um, to start by saving lives um, and use a lot of the, the discretion that they have um, and you know all of their networks to, to make sure that um, we release folks who are in a position to, to safely reenter and have all the support services that they need. 
I think it's urgent that we release more folks from carceral facilities. I thought that before the pandemic, that was true before. Um, it's especially true now because they're especially unsafe in these close quarters now. Um, one thing that hasn't changed is that there are lots of people in carceral facilities who do also need additional support services, whether they're inside or outside, you know, whether this is substance abuse treatment um, or safe housing. And um, a lot of those services have also been hurt by the pandemic. And so I don't think it's wrong of anyone to say it's difficult to make appropriate safe placement plans um, during the pandemic. That's true. And that's something, something that you're hearing from a lot of the administration. Um, and I, I think that it's important that we recognize that. But I, I also think it's important that we recognize the danger that is inherent in the facilities and that we weigh that very carefully and that, um, you know, when, when the risk of illness and frankly death um, has changed dramatically on the inside, then the calculus around how we release people has to change too. Mm -hmm. Is there anyone that you can name or a way that you see is happening right now of localities or states doing it right? So we have a number of progressive Commonwealth attorneys who were uh, elected in the last cycle that I think we should really lift up as leaders. Um, folks like Joe Platania and Jim Hingley here in um, the Charlottesville Albemarle area, I have been so excited to see them take this on um, and try to um, get as many people out um, of the jails, both pre-trial and post-trial. Um, they're for folks pre-trial, um, you know, they're sending folks ho um, home without bond and uh, post-trial they're sending folks um, home on uh, electronic incarceration. Um, I think also in Novo, we've got some wonderful folks like Steve Descano um, and, you know, they've really been leading on this. Um, and the, the challenge that we have right now is that this is a local discretion thing. Um, where different local officials all across the Commonwealth are exercising it differently, and we really need uniformity. I mean, on Friday, the, um, the administration announced that they'd seen a 17% reduction in jail populations across Virginia, which is some, and that's good. Um, but we don't have really good public data on which jails are doing how much. And as a statistician, I strongly suspect that that 17% average combines some places that are doing a lot with some places that are doing zero. And this is one of those challenges we're here in Virginia where we decentralize criminal justice policy. It means that you have places with really limited compliance. Um, I understand that the governor has limited legal authority to mandate that they do this or that, but I think you can have a stronger voice and say, hey, here's the bar, step up and meet it. These are very specific standards that you can meet and we are now going to publish the data that says whether or not you're meeting them. Um, let's recognize that there are blue places and there are red places that are doing it right. And there are blue places and there are red places that are doing it wrong. Um, and I think that there is a role right now for stronger leadership in Richmond to, to document and then motivate people to meet a higher standard. So, and when you say in Richmond, um, you were referring to the General Assembly or you were referring to Richmond City proper? Oh, I mean, I was referring when I say, um, I think there's leadership in Richmond um, in the governor's administration to set higher standards. But I think what you're hitting on right here is that uh, Richmond City is a place where I don't think we're seeing the same kind of local leadership that we could. Now, you know that better than I do. Right. And, and it was just a, a double play of that one, because I know folks from outside of Richmond and for Richmond listeners that may not know this, um, a lot of General Assembly members and advocates, when they talk about Richmond, they're talking about the, gen the governor's administration. But you're right, Delegate Hudson, you're right that 
we are keeping a, a close eye on what's happening and we're talking to some folks right here in Richmond and so we'll get more of that information but I want to thank you for being here and before you get out of here just really quickly we try and ask all of our guests um, what is your privilege and just really quickly what is your privilege right now in this moment of COVID? I mean, one that I'm keenly aware of right now is that I have a stable income and savings that don't respond to a disease outbreak. So there are lots of businesses that have had to shut down. I'm a professor at the University of Virginia. Um, my salary comes in each month, um, even when there's not revenue coming in the doors. And so I am protected in that way right now from a lot of folks who are hurting economically. Mm. Well, thank you so much, Delegate Hudson. I feel like it's a privilege for me to be in community with you and to hear these solutions and who has the authority to really meet these demands to match our public health needs right now while we also consider public safety. So thank you so much for joining us and good luck with all your advocacy. We will be keeping watch. And likewise, thank you so much for what you're doing. I am so keenly aware in this crisis, especially how important it is to have really strong press oversight because so many of us can't go and see this stuff with our own eyes. And so you are doing serious public service right now. Thank you so much. Um, and good luck with General Assembly in that special session. We'll do what we can. Thank you. Thanks. And next up on Race Capital today, we are welcoming Kim Rolla with the Legal Aid Justice Center. Thank you so much for being here, Kim. Thanks for having me, Chelsea. I have been following uh, what you all have been doing out in the public eye and seen in the media that you are um, jumping right in to the COVID work. But first, do you mind telling our listeners a little bit about Legal Aid Justice Center? The Legal Aid Justice Center is uh, a legal aid organization. We provide free civil legal services for low-income folks in Central Virginia. And your specific role is in that support and advocacy. I'm an attorney with the organization. I'm also currently the interim director of the Civil Rights and Racial Justice Program. So tell us a little bit about what you all are focused on right now in this COVID time. My, my program focuses on the criminal legal system. So the demands I've been working most closely on are to protect folks that are incarcerated. So people in our jails and our prisons and our juvenile detention facilities in Virginia that we know are incredibly dangerous right now. So my work for the last month or so has focused on releasing, um, pushing state and local actors to release as many people as possible to keep those folks safe, the human beings that are in those facilities, and also to keep our broader communities safe. Now, you mentioned that these facilities are extremely dangerous. I'm going to say that the other side of a narrative is that the people are in there are extremely dangerous. How right now are you all really focused on centering public health as public safety? Yeah, I think that that's the perfect articulation of the frame we've been trying to use. I think a really timely example of this in Virginia is that the first outbreak the, that we knew of in VDOC was the Virginia Correctional Center for Women, which is in Goochland County. And that was, that was also where the woman who passed, um, who 
died of COVID-19 in BDOC custody uh, was held. Public health officials have already told us they have seen community spread and spikes in Goochland County directly following the spike in the facility there. So I think that what I would ask people, even if folks who do not typically think of themselves as advocates for incarcerated folks who may feel moved by law and order rhetoric, is to really say, are the people that are in these cages more dangerous to you than this virus that we know is deadly? And I think the answer for the vast majority of the people in our system, and actually there was a sheriff in Virginia Beach that, I don't typically quote sheriffs, but he said to his his constituents, we have to decide who we're mad at and who we're afraid of. Mm. And I think that, you know, I might push back on that that fear frame a little bit, but I do I do think it's a good question to ask to say are like that public safety framework now's the time to really question that and say are are the massive number of people that we're holding over sixty thousand people in Virginia do we think over sixty thousand people are too dangerous to be out right now when we know also the, that there is a real threat to people's well being that comes from keeping them. In those facilities. Right. And that has been weighing heavily on my mind while putting together this episode is to really try and stretch our thinking about who our public safety experts are during a pandemic. And to me, it sounds like it should be our public health officials should be the experts we're listening to when we're making our public safety decisions, our law and order decisions right now. Um, and maybe not our typical top cop people that are reporting out with on these facilities. We need to be listening to other people. These are very different times. I think that that's absolutely right. And particularly when there's really clear conflict between those people, right? We've seen that at the national level where we have political officials that are saying things that are contrary to public health experts. We also have that at the local level. We have that at the state level. When we have sheriffs and regional jail superintendents who are being quoted in the paper saying that the safest place that people can be is in jail because they are controlling who comes in and out. That flies in the face of every single public health expert in this, I'm almost, I'm sure maybe there's some outliers, but every single public health expert I have spoken to has said that these congregate settings, nursing homes, Jails, prisons, these are where the virus spreads like wildfire. It is unacceptable for people that are charged with keeping the public safe to be using that that kind of rhetoric right now. And I absolutely agree with you that um, where, where their positions are conflicting with public health experts, we need to defer to the public health experts in, in this pandemic. Exactly, exactly. So... Um, very specifically, what are your recommendations and and your demands, and to whom are you really communicating with to try and get this done? So I think what I will say is we've actually been kind of dual tracking our advocacy both at the state level and the local level because I, I believe it's important for everyone, all of your listeners, to know that that people up and down that spectrum have tools available to them for them to act to release people right now. That's true for Commonwealth's attorneys. That's true for sheriffs. 
that's true for the police department and who they choose to arrest and take into custody. So we've been really trying, I think LAJC's role is to get as much information, um, both about the legal mechanisms, how sheriffs can release people to home electronic incarceration. They don't need the Commonwealth attorney. How the Commonwealth attorney can agree to pretrial release. How they can do sentence modifications, even if someone's already serving a sentence in the jail. How police can issue summons and not actually arrest people. It's important for folks to know that. And we've also been filing FOIA, Freedom of Information Act, public records requests to ask those criminal legal system actors, what are you doing? We know you have these tools. How are you using them right now? And then on the local level, we've been trying to give that to the grassroots advocates, to the families of people who are incarcerated, to their community members, to push locally to get actors to use those tools. Because we know this is a fight all across the state. Um, we can't, you know, we're not the ones to carry that mantle. So we just want to give that that knowledge and those tools to the people who are doing that work and have been doing that work for years. Um, then more, I think what we are, uh, I guess I would say taking a more um, leadership role in is the state level demands. Uh, I think it's really important to know that those local actors have those powers, but also right now, the person with the most authority to free the most people in Virginia is Governor Northam. Mm-hmm. And state-level actors, we know time is of the essence, and the quickest way to release people from BDOC custody, and again, our opinion is also jails, is the governor's use of the clemency authority. That's mm-hmm. What that is, is it's, a, it's people may have heard of it as pardons. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the power of um, the, the executive, right? So the president in the U.S. could pardon people in the federal system. In the state system, the governor can pardon people. Those pardons can look a number of different ways. Um, There are what are called absolute pardons, which would be the governor deciding that, you know, you were wrongly convicted. There's also pardons that are saying that you, that are what we would call a full pardon, that you are not, they're not saying that your conviction goes away, but you're no longer going to be serving an active sentence. Mm -hmm. You can be released as of that date. And there's also the ability of the governor to do something that's called a conditional pardon that says, I'm going to offer you a set of conditions that you can accept. And if you can accept those, then your sentence will be modified. And as long as you follow those conditions, they will continue. Mm -hmm. If you violate them, you will go back to your original sentence. Mm -hmm. So that gives the governor even the power to say, maybe some folks um, he believes should be under the supervision of probation. Right? Like that they need some kind of structured supervision for a certain period of time. That could be built into the pardon power. And I think the real important thing that I would want folks to know is is I I think it's a good thing that Governor Northam proposed the budget amendment he did. Um, I think that that's a step in the right direction. But I also want people to know that he didn't need to ask the legislature to do that. Mm. He already had the power to do that. And he still has the power to do that and more. Because we know that that budget amendment will only reach, according to BDOC, only about 2,000 people will even be eligible. Yeah. And we know that there are people who are elderly, there are people that are sick, mm-hmm. that will not be brought under that amendment. Right. And the governor has the power right now, with the stroke of a pen, to either give those people a full pardon, or if he believes it's appropriate, a conditional pardon, um, and and protect their lives. I mean, that's that's what we're talking about here. Right. 
there's been some numbers about the impact of decarceration efforts that Governor Northam has commented on. Do you think those numbers are acceptable to where we are right now? So I think the governor put out a press release, um, I believe late last week, that announced that based on his recommendations to local criminal legal system actors, so to Commonwealth attorneys, to sheriffs, to police, who we were talking about earlier, that in light of those recommendations, um, there has been a 17% reduction in jail population. So that those numbers, the 17%, is just for jails. And I think I would say two things to that. One, I just have to take a moment to say what incredible work of the grassroots, the movement that is calling for, for freeing our people, for the governor to put out a press release praising himself for letting people out of jail. Truth. That is that is powerful. I think that's that's power from the it community, is. right? For the government to try to for the governor to try to claim that as his victory. It is. And the second thing I would say is I, I think that, that that is an average, right? Right. And we know um, that you, so from I, I work a lot in Charlottesville. I know that the Albemarle Charlottesville Regional Jail has reduced its population by almost thirty percent. Mm-hmm. I know that Norfolk has reduced its population by around 28% the last time I saw. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe Fairfax has reduced its jail population by around 40%. Mm-hmm. What's happening is that that's being averaged with jurisdictions like Richmond, where to the best of our ability, or the best of our knowledge, when we're trying to get hard numbers on this, there's still about 650 to 700 people in our jail, which usually holds 750. So I've run that number, so that's about... Seven percent, I think the thirteen percent reduction. So, so what's happening is that average is flattening, while differences across jurisdictions, and again, that's going to cause localized hotspots that are going to impact. We should care. We should care about the human beings in those facilities. Right. And I, I'm sure, actually, most of your listeners do care about the human beings in those facilities. But it's also going to impact the counties and the cities everyone in those jurisdictions that are not reducing their jail population. So I think it's really important for people to know that there could be, Oh, there's, there's disparity hiding in that average. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And as you mentioned, that's, that's also just the jails, right? Right. Right. So Virginia department of corrections, as of now, the number that they've been putting out and praising themselves for is 95 people approved for parole in the month of March. That is indeed a, I think it's a 150-ish percent increase from the usual approval rate, mm-hmm. but it's still a very small number mm-hmm. of people. And I think the Virginia Department of Corrections holds slightly less than 30,000 people. Wow. So that that is a very, I mean, and, and obviously again, the proposed budget amendment, that is an important step. Right. But we are not seeing a 17% decrease even in, in BDOC. They're nowhere near that. Right, right. This has been incredibly informative, Kim. Thank you so much. Really quickly, what is your privilege during all of this within COVID? So I'm privileged to, you know, have steady income. Um, we, some of my household members have lost their job, but we're privileged to, to be stable right now. Um, mm-hmm. We're privileged to be home together um, mm-hmm. and only need to leave uh for basic essentials, you know, once or twice a week. Mm-hmm. And I will say on a more 
metaphysical level, I think I'm privileged to be in community with people that have me uh, feeling like I still have power right now. I don't, that I don't feel helpless right now. Um, and I think that that's so important and I'm so grateful for the work that our community has done for years, building the relationships and the infrastructure to be able to respond to an unimaginable crisis uh, with the level of um, presence and grace and power that people have. Um, I feel really privileged to, to know all the people that I'm working with right now. Wow. Thank you so much, Kim. And how can people follow you and your work over at LAJC? So Legally Justice Center, as I mentioned, we have a uh, COVID advocacy page on our website um, that is actually just justice, the number four, all, all.org, slash COVID19-advocacy. And it has the comprehensive platform that I mentioned earlier on housing and homelessness, public benefits, healthcare, um, what, any issue that's touching you and your loved ones and your family, I'm sure that there are specific resources and demands on that site. I'm sure there are too, because you all are so present. So thank you again for your work, and we'll see you out there. Appreciate you. Thank you, Chelsea. You are listening to WRIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Independent Radio, with me, Chelsea Higgs-Wise, on Race Capital. This week, we are really excited to have back on the show, Rebecca Keel. We know Rebecca Keel from their organizing work all throughout Virginia and in the South. Welcome, Rebecca. Thanks for having me on. So we have been following along, and to be honest, our Race Capital team has just been incredibly inspired by what's been happening the last couple of Fridays with your action rallies around the Richmond City Justice Center. Can you tell people a little bit um, first, before we get there, about your organization that you work with, Song. Yeah, so Song, uh, a.k.a. Southerners on New Ground, we are a 27-year-old intersectional justice organization, Southern Base, obviously, with the name. But our work is largely to organize um, queer people of color in the South and our allies um, and work on issues that affect us and our people. Uh, recently, those issues have been pre-trial detention and cash bail. And then for about the past three years, around this time, springtime, uh, we'll start to fundraise for the Black Mama's Day bailouts. And what those are is making sure we have enough money to literally bond people out of incarceration. You said Black Mama bailouts? Yes. Wow. Yes. Okay. Keep going. So our focus and intention is on Black women, um, Black mothers, Black caregivers um, who are held um, and, and largely, we found in doing this work that they're held in pretrial detention, which means you are just waiting for your court date. You haven't been found guilty. You haven't been found innocent yet. You are just waiting in a cell. And so with the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic, we had to uh, pivot our strategy um, instead of focusing solely on black women and caregivers as we would have in this time, we were like, we got to do these freedom all demands. We really need to get as many people released 
from incarceration as possible. And that's jails, that's prisons, that's detention centers, um, those all the, the facilities of incarceration because jails are not historically clean places nor prisons and that and you can't social distance properly in those spaces so jails just I mean if you put it simply and in governmental terms they're not up to CDC standards for ways to practice safety and um, uh, be sanitary at this point so it's just a petri dish for disease for spreading this virus and it not only impacts the people who are incarcerated but the workers in the jail themselves jails and prisons so so how did you all come up with the idea of a car rally during COVID? I was really impressed that there could still be this sort of public action, collective action, while still practicing the public health recommendations of social distancing. Well, we had to get creative. We really did. And so um, prior to the car rally in Richmond, I was very inspired by my comrades in Fulton County, Georgia who did a car rally that accelerated the release of 300 people in their jail. And so I was like, bet, this can work. So we whipped it together um, within four days. Um, our first action was on the 10th, I believe. Um, and from that, we decided that, yes, we can, act, we can demonstrate, we can exercise our right to assembly, our right to free speech. Um, but we can do it safely and in a social distance way and still let people in the Richmond City Jail know that we're out here for them and we care about them and also put um, our targets on notice, our targets being the Commonwealth Attorney and the Sheriff who can exercise their authority for releasing people. They have power here, they have discretion here, um, and they have not done everything that they can do to release as many people as possible. So we were like, we're going to go turn up at the jail because the sheriff has gotten letters, the Commonwealth train has gotten letters, the governor has gotten letters, the secretary of public safety has gotten letters. And we know that while this is an excellent tactic to put people on notice, we still needed to go and demonstrate to show them that we're not going to back down just because they didn't respond to our letters, you know. Um, and we're hoping that these continued actions are going to accelerate the release of people who are incarcerated, not only at the Richmond City Jail, but this send out uh, a reverberating message to all around the state. And so we know that um, some members across the state are now organizing and mobilizing people to do car rallies outside of um, their local detention centers, whether that be a prison or a jail, um, or even youth facilities too. So just not only to show people inside that we care for them um, on the outside, but also to show, uh, again, to put our targets on notice, say, hey, we're watching, we're paying attention, and we need you to respond and do it swiftly. So tell us a little bit about the experience of the car rally. So we gather, and when we're gathering, um, one, it's a bit of a celebration. It's a bit of a, like, relief from feeling so isolated from people because you can see so many people and still be in your car and still be socially distanced. Um, but we play in music. We like to, you know, do like a little honk practice and get get get, um, get ourselves feeling not honk shy because we're really trying to go and make some noise and emphasize um, our presence at the jail. And so we gather. And then while we're there, um, volunteers are um, giving out like safety instructions that have not only the route, but um, uh, information on con like considerations for if you have any priors, just ways to be safe in dealing with the police, ways to be safe at a direct action mm -hmm. protest. Um, and so we make sure that people have the information when they get there. 
then we all take off the way things have gone the past two weeks. As we gather from 2 to 2.30, then we take off together to the jail, um, and then we start doing loops around the median of Oliver Hillway and Fairfield. Um, so people inside can see, but also the front of the jail, um, where the parking lot is, where um, a lot of security guards are, they can also see and hear us and everything. And so the jail, it has its own staff, but the street is Richmond uh, City Police jurisdiction. And so we're dealing with two different for uh, police forces, which is important to note, um, because they're like, the Richmond police will, you know, they do what they do. They direct traffic. <laughs> they direct the traffic of the protest. But that's all and well and fine because our, our the point is not to us to have a stand down with the Richmond City Police, but it's to hold down a presence outside of the jail to, again, put the sheriff on notice, put the Commonwealth Attorney on notice, and everyone else who's watching. The first week we had a great success in being in the media and getting widespread coverage. And we're hoping that as these rallies continue, the news coverage will spread. So I'm really grateful, one, for this interview to get the word out there because we're doing it again this Friday, the 24th. Um, meet at 615 East Broad Street at 2 o'clock. Deck out your car. Put signs on the hood, on the roof. That way people who are elevated, like people who are upstairs at the Richmond City Jail, can see your message and see that you're out here for them. And so we're going to, again, meet at 615 East Broad Street at 2 o'clock and, you know, bring bring your instruments, bring, like, the loudest music you can <laughs> um, and, and come, come ready to make some noise. And this one's going to be a little different. Um, if you show up, you'll see why. Um, but we're going to take not only the Richmond City Jail, but we're going to go to a second location together. And so if you want to know what that second location is, come on out this Friday at 2 o'clock. That's great. That's great. And thank you so much for and this action isn't just for us to send a message, like you said, to the officials, but also to let the people inside know that we're out there fighting for them and using our voices. So on top of the very community facing organizing that's happening, some people might say, well, you're just making a lot of noise. What's actually happening in some other conversations, not to go into too much detail, but how has this action um, continued to progress the movement right here in Richmond? Well, after I'm really glad you asked this question. After our first action, we were able to land a meeting with the Commonwealth Attorney, Colette McEachin, um, who revealed that she hasn't been exercising all of the power that she could to release people. And then from our second rally, we've been able to get a meeting with the sheriff, Antoinette Irving, who we're going to ask similar questions on, okay, what's the, can you provide us data for how many people have been released? Are there any uh, release mechanisms that are untapped with your authority, Sheriff Irving? And can you actually exercise, will you, ex, not can you, will you exercise that power right now um, for the sake that lives are on the line in Richmond City Jail? There are vulnerable populations in the country pregnant, people with asthma, people who are immunocompromised, people who are elderly, people who frankly just shouldn't be in a cage, period, because they haven't been found guilty of anything, uh, keeping in mind that Richmond City Jail has a large population of people in pretrial detention. So we put our targets on notice. We are having meetings. We are using a diversity of tactics to make sure we can release as many people as possible. Beautiful. And one last question before you get out of here, just a line or two. What is your privilege right now, Rebecca Keel, in this COVID moment? My privilege is that I have a job that I'm continuing to get paid from, that I can stay at home and be safe. Also, my privilege is I got a stimulus check, which was 
I work at a nonprofit, y'all. <laughs> um, and so with that stimulus check that, frankly, I don't need because I'm still getting paid right now, I have donated half to a comrade who is beginning of um, a farm project in Sussex County to make medicine for um, black folks, folks of color, queer and trans people. And the other half is going to a fund in uh, Lynchburg to support migrant communities down there because Lynchburg, Southwest Virginia, we got to show them some love too and just redistribute the wealth all around the state. Thank you so much, Rebecca. One more time. How can people follow you in your work with song? You can follow Song on Instagram at Ignite Kindred, or you can find us on Facebook at Southerners on New Ground, or hit us up on the on our website at www.southernersonnewground.org. Well, good luck for this Friday at 2 p.m., correct? And what's the address that people are meeting at? 615 East Broad Street, right across the street from our African Ancestral Burial Ground. All right, thanks again. Good luck, Rebecca. Thank you. Okay, and finally this week, we are hearing from Valerie Slater of Rise for You. Thank you so much for joining us, Valerie. Thank you so much, Chelsea, for having me on. It is an honor and a pleasure always to chat with you. I know this is a busy time for you all, um, but if you don't mind, remind the listeners a little bit about the work that you are leading with your team over at Rise for Youth. Sure, sure. Um, Again, I'm Valerie Slater. I'm the executive director of RISE for Youth. RISE stands for Reinvest in Supportive Environments. We believe first and foremost that prison is no place for children. And so we work with community members and families and children to create healthy and positive environments for them, whether it be in their family, whether it be in their community, whether it be in any space where young people are impacted. Rise for Youth is there to help ensure that that space is going to create a positive space for young people to grow and thrive. I know that I was able to see you all doing a lot of good work in the General Assembly. Um, Congratulations on your bill going that far, and this way you'll be able to have that data and that study to come back even stronger next year. Prior to COVID coming, what were Rise for Youth's next steps um, that you had envisioned for 2020? You know, we are on the move in many arenas. So right now we are in the process of really building out our youth advocacy component, Mm -hmm. our Youth for Rise. Um, We were getting ready to launch our Youth Development Academy, um, providing advocacy opportunities, learning opportunities for young people so that they can learn what does it mean to be an advocate in many of the ways that are uh, advancing in the Commonwealth, whether it be environmental advocacy, whether it be juvenile justice, whether it's education, but just bringing all of these advocacy efforts together under one platform for young people to just learn, find their true passion, and then pursue it with fierceness. Um, So we've unfortunately had to put that on hold. That was in partnership with the Virginia Civic Engagement Table, who helped to develop much of the training. Um, And so so now we have taken our youth-led arm, Youth for Rise, we have taken it virtual. Mm -hmm. And so our young people are meeting 
online every, the first three Saturdays of every month. So that's going very well, and our young people are engaged. The youth group is growing, and it's just an exciting time. Mm-hmm. Um, we also were gearing up for our justice parade. You know, the youth justice parade is a huge part of our advocacy efforts because we spend the year um, working with partners like Performing Statistics and right. supporting their um, summer program where young people are coming out of the detention center and creating artwork and then you know the advocacy efforts of our youth arise and all of that culminating in um, not just the exhibit but then a parade that is bringing all of that artwork into the streets to amplify the messages that young people who have experienced the justice system the, the messages that they're wanting to put out there hey we would prefer a world where there are no prisons we are our lives matter and if we are given opportunity we can make better choices and you know all of those messages bringing them to the streets and making them accessible to the the all of Virginia so we've of course had to also put that on hold mm, um, yeah. and then of course our work to be active partners um, in the study as it moves forward right. to make sure that we are looking all around the Commonwealth and making sure that every everything that's necessary to to put together a comprehensive uh, data package that demonstrates just how uh, wonderful it will be when we are using all of the resources for re- rehabilitation where they're needed most. So yeah. a lot of what a lot of things got put on hold. This is quite a gut check to have this crisis happen and now your advocacy for just survival and um, again lifting that voice of their lives matter is really back at the forefront very directly. That's exactly right. It has been. Challenging is an understatement. Mm -hmm. What we are experiencing now, this COVID virus, as it's just running its course through the Commonwealth and through even our nation, through the world, our hearts are hurting that so quickly and so easily. The young people who are incarcerated at uh, the Bonaire Juvenile Correctional Center, you know, so little is being said about what they are living through right now. Our hearts are hurting that to know that these young people are locked in their cells for 23 hours a day, that family members are struggling to find out information, what exactly is going on with their young people, when will they have the opportunity to talk to their young ones, and that they are not reassured that their young people are even receiving the necessary therapies and treatments that they were receiving. You know, uh, some of the family members that we have been talking to, you know, listening to them talk about how their children, they, they feel like their mental health is deteriorating because of how long they are having to spend locked in their room and oftentimes alone. Right. You know, some kids have roommates, but those that don't, 23 hours in a cell by yourself. Valerie. I can't imagine. Valerie. I can't imagine. I I can't. You're right. We can't imagine. But right now, many people are going, quote unquote, crazy in their own homes. So having Mm -hmm. people to take a second and put themselves in these youth's shoes of being in a cage, not receiving the rehabilitative services which is the excuse we use for putting our young people into these facilities. And now they're just isolated away alone. And I'm sure just to 
even more confused than most of us are out here with our freedom. Right, right. And some of the other things that we have heard is that these young people, they're not even being updated on the status. What's going on? How are things? And so they're, they're left to their own imaginations. And I'm going to tell you what, when I don't have concrete information or a, uh, an avenue to receive it, my own imagination can run and create all kinds of things. And that is never healthy. It yeah. is never healthy. That's, and now we have done this to children. That's a really good point, Valerie. Thank you for bringing that up. Wow. So tell us a little bit about what um, is shaping up from your advocacy. So the first thing we did was we immediately, we reached out to Director Boykin. We reached out to uh, Secretary of Public Health and Safety, Brian Moran, and we sent these letters directly to them, you know, offering our support and listing recommendations, and we received no response. And so then we made the letters public, and we asked for sign-on. So uh, we had many of the legislators that were supporting our work during the General Assembly. They signed on um, uh, a significant number of Commonwealth attorneys. They, uh, with their own letter, put forward the demands Mm -hmm. uh, or the the recommendations that we had made. And, And so we have just added layers and layers of support and we're working even now to allow for community members to voice their support and to put forward those same recommendations that number one young people are receiving the opportunity to communicate with family and they should not have to pay for it Mm -hmm. young people even today are still having to pay to talk to their loved ones they're needing to have money on their books or they're not able to make calls. That's not okay. We need for young people to um, have full access to medical care. We have heard that there have been young folks who um, have requested to, uh, you know, they've said that they're not feeling well and they have not been tested. The fact that we have not tested every child with an outbreak of 25 young people, that is outrageous. We have heard that they are now going to be testing everyone in some of the prison facilities. You are not using that same level of care when it comes to children. That makes no sense. We must make sure that every one of those young people are safe. You're absolutely right, Valerie. And thank you for really lifting the day-to-day experiences that these youth are are living right now. You mentioned uh, Director Boykin. Who is that for the audience? Director Boykin, she is the director of the Department of Juvenile Justice. Okay. And then you also mentioned Secretary Moran. If you could just tell the audience who Secretary Moran is. Yes. um, The Secretary of Public Health and Safety, that's Brian Moran. He, it is his department or his secretariat that covers both DJJ, the Department of Juvenile Justice, and DOC, the Department of Corrections. And so he is the direct report for Valerie Boykin. Mm -hmm. And so if you, I'm asking all of our guests today to meet your recommendations to keep the youth safe that you're working with, who exactly has that authority? It's a both and. Okay. Um, So there are children who have been indeterminately uh, placed in Bonaire, and that means um, their sentence is not set. 
they have requirements that they must satisfy for the court. They have treatment requirements uh, based upon the treatment plan that is put in place for them. But it is uh, the Department of Juvenile Justice has the authority to uh, transition those children out and into community placement and into homes. Mm -hmm. And then there are determinately sentenced kids. Those are children who have a set amount of time, and it is the judge is the only one, the sentencing judge is the only one that has the authority to uh, amend or change that sentence. Mm -hmm. And so we are asking that the department reach out to Commonwealth attorneys and to judges to let them know when a young person uh, has satisfied uh, requirements sufficient that their case ought to be heard again. And that can be that can happen through what's called a serious offender review. And so we're asking that they are pushing for as many young people as possible who, who safely can be transitioned out of that facility, that they're doing everything that they can to make that happen. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, um, so, so those are two layers, right? right? We've got the department head. Valerie Boykin, who can make some decisions. We have got judges and Commonwealth attorneys that, in collaboration with the department, can make some 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 choices about who gets to come home. And then there, of course, is the governor who has the authority to say, you know, kids who are individuals who have satisfied the requirements. So any anything that the governor has said as it relates to uh, DOC. Those determinately, determinately sentenced kids, those kids that have blended sentence, the blended sentence is you've got some time that you owe to the department, and then you have some time that has been um, slated also for the Department of Corrections. You know, those kids, those determinately sentenced kids, they could be covered in what the, in the governor's authority to look at and release children or release um, individuals. Mm -hmm. So we're asking that all three of those layers be applied in this instance for children. Mm -hmm. um, everyone that has authority ought to be exerting it to make sure that the most young people as can safely be transitioned and who also have support in community to make sure that that transition is a healthy one, mm -hmm. they ought to be transitioned out. And I, I just want to highlight that a great deal of our work right now is to collect the information of community partners who can help with support in community. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I just want to ask if you are a provider in community that does any of the therapies and services that children need, we want your information. We are collecting it and, and, and putting it in a, a place where we are able to say, if a child needs this service, we are able to help with it. If a child needs um, housing assistance, we are able to help with that. If you know children are in need of groceries or any of those things, we are able to help with it. Mm -hmm. And so we are, we're true to our word. We are looking to help create healthy environments for children, supportive environments for children. Mm -hmm. And so we have, we've asked repeatedly of the department, reach out to us because we are willing to bring all of our collaborative resources to bear mm -hmm. and to make sure that children get what they need and that they are able to transition out of that facility. Wow. Wow. And how can, if people aren't providers, how can they support you all? As I shared, we are helping with groceries and all of those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And so if anyone would like to donate, 
please go to our website, riseforyouth.org, and when you click on the donate button and you enter your amount, it's, it gives you the opportunity to leave a note. Mm-hmm. And we're asking that you please put into that note COVID-19 Relief Fund. We have a special designation for funds that come in through that through that uh, channel, and they will be used to buy groceries, to buy what to provide whatever is needed by young people and their families that are transitioning out of facilities. And so, and if you know of a provider, if you know of someone who has space. Share, share what I'm telling you right now. Mm-hmm. Make sure that those folks are aware and they connect with us so that we can put together comprehensive wraparound services for young people coming out of these facilities. That's great. You know, we're also putting together um, immune, immune booster packs, mm. and it's all um, healthy foods that you can eat. We are not healthcare providers, and we are not giving medical advice at all. But we know that you know fruits and vegetables help to boost immune systems, right. and we know that a healthy lifestyle that is fed by healthy eating will lead to healthy individuals, and healthy individuals help build healthy communities. Correct. Thank Valerie. Thank you so much for the work you are really doing. The systems work of providing support for these children to have their freedom, but to also survive and thrive in a healthy community. Thank you so much. And um, we're just asking for a sentence of two from all of our guests today and asking, what is your privilege? Uh, What is your privilege with all of this going on in COVID right now? My privilege is that I am still working full time. Mm. And I'm, I'm not financially impacted. I have the luxury of sitting in my own home. Right. right. And that is privilege. And it is a privilege that I want to see extended to every family of every young person that has been impacted by the juvenile justice system, no matter how slight the touch. I want every one of those families to know what it means to be secure and healthy and safe. And I want it for every family in the Commonwealth, but my heart right now is for those young people whose lives are so drastically impacted by the juvenile justice system and now the COVID-19 virus. Wow. Um, Valerie Slater of Rise for Youth, thank you again for your time. Thank you for all that you and your team are doing. Thank you so much, Chelsea. Be blessed and be safe. After speaking to all of our guests, I'm drawn to remind myself and all of our listeners that every person with authority to meet the demands of the people are democratically elected by the people or appointed by those we elect. During the pandemic of a lifetime, our hearts and history will not allow us to forget if our elected officials across the Commonwealth of Virginia lacked the political will to show us if the lives of our loved ones and these facilities truly do matter to these politicians. Thank you to all of our guests today. We know you won't quit. We know you'll keep fighting. And we want you to know you're not alone. Honk if you hear me. This is Chelsea Higgs-Wise. Thank you for caring about our people. And thanks for listening to Race Capital. We'll catch you next week. Because a winner don't quit on themselves.